For the week of Thursday, June 7th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, Amy Siskind. She is the creator of theweeklylist.org, a site that catalogs the many ways the Trump administration is pushing the country toward authoritarianism. The site has just been compiled into a book entitled The List, and Siskind joins us to talk about it and to share some of the insights she's gained into her now over 500 days of tracking Donald Trump. He really is seeking to end our democracy. He views this as a and when he's done with it, he's going to pass it to Ivanka. This is how his mind operates. Then, Indivisible Kirkland recently worked with the Kirkland City Council to successfully pass gun safety legislation there. They're going to be holding a community workshop on gun safety issues, and Indivisible Kirkland's Heather McKnight joins us to discuss all of it. That's coming up, so stay with us. Amy Siskind is a former Wall Street executive, and she is the co-founder of The New Agenda. She is also the creator of theweeklylist.org, and she's compiled the first year of it into a book called The List, which is now out on hardback on Bloomsbury Press. Amy Siskind, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you have been writing The Weekly List since the week after the election in 2016, uh, and this is an effort to catalog uh, the country's slide into authoritarianism uh, under Donald Trump. And so I, I want to start with your thoughts on the news this week, uh, where we had Trump's legal team arguing essentially that the president is in charge of the federal agencies investigating him and therefore cannot obstruct justice. Uh, and we also had Trump saying that he feels that he believes he has the power to pardon himself. This is It's a high bar, but this feels like one of the more overt moves that Trump has made toward authoritarianism during his term in office. And, you know, you talked about this on a video that you made for Move On, but I'd love for you to share some of your thoughts on that here. Yeah, so when I started doing the project, I had a sense things were not right, but I wouldn't have even been able to fathom how quickly we would descend into not normal. Mm. And the idea behind it was to keep track of things that were not normal week by week, so we would have a, a way to guide our trail back to normalcy, but also so we could remember things. And when I look at the early list, they're shocking, but as a person who has kept history in a sense, I also then can trace paths of where things have gone. And the example you mentioned, the pardon, and what I said on the Move On video, is he's gradually been doing that week by week in the early weeks. Um, you started to see him say that the Department of Justice and the FBI were his, and they should report to him and do what he told them to do. And he either had trouble understanding when Comey and others told him that wasn't the case or refused to understand more likely. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, it, it descended to him publicly tweeting that he wanted those agencies to investigate Crooked Hillary, which we're still saying Crooked Hillary this week, mm. two weeks later, and former President Obama, uh, as if, you know, those were, those agencies were there for his use to, you know, go after his political opponents. So he, he gradually pushes the envelope and pushes boundaries, and because he has no consequences and there's no accountability, um, because the Republican Party is not putting him into check and balance in any way, he just continues to push these boundaries where we're basically leading up to our judicial branch or Supreme Court to stop him. Um, but it, it's a gradual degradation of norms because if I had told you in November 2016 he was going to fire 
the acting, um, yeah, Sally Yates when, when she was the acting director, and, and then James Comey, who was the director of the FBI, um, and nothing would happen, and that he would be threatening to uh, go after his political opponents, you'd say, oh, no, no, that would never happen. Right. But these things keep happening, and they keep getting increasing in intensity and severity because he's getting away with them. Right. It's sort of the frog in the pot analogy, right? It's, you turn up the heat slowly exactly. and the frog, the frog doesn't jump out and ultimately uh, winds up getting uh, boiled to death. Um, the term constitutional crisis keeps coming up, but a lot of commentators are saying that we're already in a constitutional we're crisis. We're in a constitutional crisis. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we all learned in high school history class that there were checks and balances, but what we've learned through the experience of Trump and our fragile democracy is those are norms, not laws. So the only way that we can enforce that is in November to get out and vote and assume that things are going to be fair, which they're probably not going to be fair. Like Los Angeles Times reported last night that a number of people went to vote and their names weren't on the voting rolls. We can certainly expect that around the country. So we have to make sure that we, you know, are extra diligent in getting everybody we know to the polls because I would assume, since Trump is still not acknowledged, that we had um, Russian interference, and since DHS has taken almost no step to improve things that went wrong last time, that it's going to happen again. And the check and balance coming in November can't overstate the importance. You know, I, as I said on that Move On video, we are really on the razor's edge here of losing our democracy. It's you know, and we can talk more about what he's done. Uh, but basically, the the White House is Trump organization. It's it's himself surrounded by twenty sicko fans, and he's making all the decision decisions unilaterally. A number of our federal agencies are mostly unstaffed in key roles. Um, there's an article this morning in the Wall Street Journal about the Department of Justice and the number of key roles there, including the number three spot they can't fill that are just remaining unfilled, um, like the State Department as well. So Trump is doing all those duties, and that's what happens in an authoritarian regime. The power consolidates into the hands of one, and and we are on that road and fast. I mean, it's him and his children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you touched on the genesis of the list, and I want to I want to get into that in a second. And I certainly do want to talk about, you know, what it is that you advise we can do. Uh, but before we move on from this latest situation, uh, I just want to ask you, Paul Ryan uh, was asked about Trump pardoning himself. And Ryan said, quote, no one is above the law. And I, I, I hesitate to use the term hopeful, but do you feel like Trump pardoning himself would be a tripwire, even for currently supportive Republicans in Congress? I think he's setting the groundwork to lay that as a possibility if Mueller's probe comes out and finds against him. I don't know that we're going to test that, but he is certainly, and this is a pattern throughout the book, he sets out things that are fantastical. You know, in the early weeks of the list, he was the executive producer of Celebrity Apprentice and was attacking Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was attacking corporations on his Twitter account, which he continues to do. He didn't file his taxes publicly, and he still hasn't. But what gradually happens is he says these things, and he lies, like nobody wants to see my tax returns. And then gradually we normalize it, and we our outrage turns into a dull whimper. And I think that's what he's doing with this pardon tweet early in the week, He's setting the stage to give himself the ability to do so if he needs it. 
Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting because, and, and particularly as somebody who's chronicled this from the very beginning, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this because a lot of people have said, you know, particularly early on and watching him during the campaign and then during his early days that he isn't a strategist. He simply reacts. And I'm wondering if you see looking at, at you know, kind of particularly as you went back uh, and, and compiled all of uh, 2017 into a book, did you see any patterns or anything resembling a strategy in Trump's behavior? I think he cares about, I'm going to answer your question, redirect it a little. I'm going to tell you how he governs his thoughts from what I've observed. I think he cares about two things making money and staying in power. And any legislative gains, which is one that the Republican Party has had, is related to him making money. Our foreign policy now is related to him making money. So the other end of that is staying in power. And I think he'll do whatever it takes to stay in power. He's told 3,250-some-odd lies so far since he took office. So he's conditioning us to distance ourselves from the truth and to believe him and take down our institutions. So he's gradually taking away all the checks and balances that could hold him accountable in a, in a very gradual way, but week by week he's continuing to do it. So, um, yeah, it's frightening. And, and, and so I think that's his strategy. I, I don't think he has you know, the way that you, if you were at Price Waterhouse. <laughs> he would lay out a strategic plan. He's not a strategic thinker. He just, you know, it's more like a TV show drama that we're living. He's been successful in redirecting our media. I think our media is not doing a good job of covering him. They've had pockets where they did now. I, I think they're, they've lost the upper hand with him again. What do you think the media can be doing better ultimately in covering him? Because I hear that a lot and I, and I happen to agree with you, but I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. So, yeah, and I'm very careful. I I think it's very important that we financially support our media because we need them. We need them to investigate. And they've gone through pockets of being better at this and worse than that. Uh, Let me tell you what I observe. So in my weekly list, uh, on any given week, 80% of their attention will be on 20% of the stories. And and that means that a lot of stories of what's happening in our country are getting single-source coverage in the local media and or no discussion. Um, I, I can count on my hands the number of times I'm supposed to be on an MSNBC night show to talk about what's happening to marginalized communities, and it gets bumped because they're talking about some shiny coin that Trump mm. happened to throw that day, something not normal. Um, you know, and, and actually that gave rise to me starting my own podcast because I was so frustrated last week that they were not talking about Puerto Rico, that they were not yeah. talking about what happened in our southern border. And I'm also, you know, as a result, putting those items at the top of my list. But I, I find every week there's the, the biggest hole in their coverage is what's happening to marginalized communities, women, the LGBT community, people with disabilities, the rights and protections taken away. This is, you know, the handmaid's tale kind of stuff. Mm. But it, it, it's a way authoritarian regimes come come up to power. I mean, it started in the early weeks with the Muslim ban. It continues with the NFL protest, but gradually rights and, and protections are being taken away, and um, those communities are being made to feel invisible because information on them is disappearing. And 
that is not getting coverage. We had five thousand, close to five thousand people dead in Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm like interested that the Philadelphia Eagles didn't go to the White House, but I don't need to hear that for 15 minutes on every single show, every hour on the hour. Sure, like, those are five thousand dead Americans. There are people Senator Merkley saw in cages, uh, children at our southern border. Those are the stories we need to cover, and those are happening every week and just not getting media um, focus. And they're also, you know, they they focus too much on, on uh, well, the shiny coins, but they're missing the big picture themes. They hit them really, really late as to what's happening. They're afraid to call them out for lies. They, you know, it's just they're going to have to learn. Reuters early on said they were going to cover Trump as an authoritarian regime, and they're the only ones doing it right. You know, and one of their tenets is the story shouldn't be about the media. You know, and I think too much they make it about themselves. That's another big failing. Yeah. Well, you know, and part of what you do with the list is not just to catalog the big stuff, but also to keep track of some of the things that might get lost or overlooked. And uh, and I think you're you're pointing to that directly there. So, you know, you talk in the introduction in your book about your inspiration for starting the weekly list. Uh, and it's an interesting story. I'd love for you to relay that. Uh, it came from a visit to the home of Eleanor Roosevelt after the election for uh, some reflection. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so after the election, I also run a national women's organization. So I, I and I had a certain bit of public exposure and people were asking me, what should we do? So one thing that I did is I read a lot about what it would feel like, because I had a, a sense that Trump tripped down memory lane, really didn't have policies. He wasn't a typical Republican or Democrat. He was just stoking hate, you know, starting with the Mexican rapist and, and going on from then. He was just basically seeking to divide. And in the early days when he he won the election, um, in quotes, when he won the election, mm. uh, there was a spike in, in hate crime. And I, I just remember reading on the Southern Poverty Law Center, like things that they were reporting that were happening in our schools, on our college campuses. It was shocking to me, and unlike anything we had seen. And instead of condemning that, Trump said we should grant understanding to others, which he infamously has said on other occasions since. So things didn't feel right to me. And one thing that I, I read, and, and Sarah Kenzior wrote the um, foreword for my book, it was Sarah Marsha Gessen, Ruth Ben-Gadot, who, who, wrote, who had studied authoritarianism and warned um, that things would change so subtly that you might not notice. And uh, just interestingly, a couple of weeks ago, someone tweeted, and I, it really just stuck with me, said, things feel like they're normal. I'm still watching baseball. I'm still paying my rent this month. But it's almost like I'm looking at the world through an Instagram filter, which is basically what it happens. Like everything sort of feels normal, but it's not quite right. That's a good and, analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And Sarah, in particular, in her article that came out in November 2016, had really warned to write down everything that you feel today. So this was all happening on a Saturday, the morning that Mike Pence was going to Hamilton and Trump was attacking the cast of Hamilton and SNL and the New York Times. And I, I had the benefit and luck of, of living an hour and a half from Eleanor Roosevelt's home, and she's my North Star. And, and I do go to her home frequently to kind of get inspiration and, and guidance. And I, I went that day on that Saturday and just listening to some of the things that she had said you know, way, way back then about you know, we the people are our government and we we are our democracy and how fragile that can be and the importance of our involvement and 
she wrote everything down then. She had her daily column. And I came home that night and made the first list. And it, it's it's kind of ironic. That night, I the, the photo that accompanies the first week's list, there was a New York Times reporter who had tweeted a criticism of his own paper for their coverage and normalization of, of what Trump had done with Hamilton, the cast of Hamilton. And so I, I snapshot it for the first week's list. And then the next morning when I woke up Sunday, it was gone. So that to me was like, wow, this mm. is really not normal. So that was the first week when we had nine items and um, I had no vision or plan for where it would go. And it, it gradually just, um, you know, I can, if you want to keep going on this theme, how it kind of grew. But Well, yeah, actually, I mean, I do want to talk about not just the growth, but, you know, how, how you're dealing with all of it. I mean, this last week's list had 162 items, which is just uh, extraordinary. And I, I guess the first question that I would ask about that is how many hours a week are you currently spending on this? Uh, it takes around 30 to 35 now. So it's a full-time job at this point. It's basically chewed away, like at the end of the day, every night, I have to sit down to keep up with him. I have to sit down at the computer and document what happened um, just to keep up. And then I pretty much, unless I have something during the day, I try to leave my Fridays open to just all day Friday be working on it to catch up on what happened during the week. Is you know, I try to read every article. And then I have to determine, is this not normal or is this something prior presidents have done? Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, is that what are the criteria for, for inclusion on the list? Is it simply that? So everything in, in this book and everything on my website are things that are not normal to our democracy, uh, which created some confusion in the early weeks, like when we were battling on health care and people were really upset that I wasn't covering or in Gorsuch's confirmation, and people were really upset that I wasn't covering what the Republicans were doing. And anything that's normal to Republicans versus Democrats is part of our democracy. So that's not covered in my list. What's not normal is when people with disabilities are protesting outside of McConnell's office and they're handcuffed, dragged out of their chairs for protesting, or with Gorsuch that they would change the way we confirm in a decades-old way that the Senate rules operated on confirmations. Um, so those are the kind of things I capture, things that are not normal to our democracy. And, you know, jokingly, after about a couple of months of, of Trump being in office, my son got into the car one day after school and said, I miss Jeb Bush. Um, and, <laughs> wow. and, and I said, I'm at the point where I miss George W. Bush. This is He's just so far off. Uh, he's it, it really it, my hunch was, and this has played out. He really is seeking to end our democracy. He views this as if he is in charge of our country, and when he's done with it, he's going to pass it to Ivanka. This is how his mind operates, and he's there's nothing. I mean, look at Ivanka and Jared have security clearance again. Uh, Ivanka is getting trademarks from China, so you know this has become our reality. You say in the intro to the book that, quote, a personal challenge throughout was staying engaged and dispassionate without losing my empathy and humanity. So we're 500 days in. Um, how are you how are you doing? Yeah, that was that kind of surprised me when I did my first book event in New York and I had three psychotherapists. In the audience <laughs> and like, how are you coping? Because yeah. I haven't looked away. 
and you know, and it's been really important to me to not lose my sense of outrage and my my conscience. And and so my, a lot of people call me like our national conscience at this point because I am still moved by Senator Merkley going down to the southern border and seeing what he saw. And I'm outraged still that our media is not covering that and that we're being watched around the world. So I, I've been able to sort of maintain that balance as as a human being and not just get consumed by my outrage because I think it's central to, in, in part, what's missing in the media coverage and also an understanding of what's happening because authoritarians, they tear things apart, the institutions, but they also tear apart people's psyche. And uh, they target groups, and that makes other groups afraid to speak out because they'll be next. And I fear, you know, that could happen in our country, but fortunately it's not. And so I I think I have a global sense of patterns and sort of an encyclopedic knowledge of all the items. But I, 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 so I can string together themes that are important. But I I also, yeah, I mean, I I won't lie, there are weeks, as I I wrote in my introduction, where I, I look at the screen and I, I have tears down my eyes. I mean, the week of Charlottesville, the the week of Maisha Johnson over her husband's casket as it came back from Niger with her daughter, um, and that's those photos are in my book. Uh, but yes, it's it's important to maintain our humanity through this. I, I you know, love will conquer hate at the end. Democracy will prevail, I believe, if we all fight and resist, which is happening. But. Um, we all need to be engaged, but not lose, not become like them. <laughs> yeah. Not get, not let the anger consume us and, and lose our humanity. The list is being archived in the Library of Congress, which is a huge honor. But, you know, beyond that, talk about the importance of that to you, to the work itself. And I'm going to answer that in a way you're probably not expecting, but... The thing that I was most paranoid about, and actually one of the reasons I, I, I wasn't really interested in turning it into a book. I didn't want people to feel like this was something I was doing for commercial reason. And, and I also didn't feel like I had the time to to do a book. Um, but So when the Library of Congress came, I, I was waiting for the right publication to write sort of the coming out story about what I was doing, and um, Margaret Sullivan who I adore, who was at the Washington Post, who, and I think they're doing a great job relatively to the rest. And she wrote a great me. piece about you, actually, which was yeah. what brought a lot, what brought you to a lot of people's attention was that piece. She did, and it was like, it shocked both of us, too. It became like the top story at the Washington Post, mm. which for a lifestyle kind of piece is not usually, it didn't usually happen. It was the first time in my life I was trending on Twitter. I, was, <laughs> I woke up that morning, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> what have you done? Yeah. It's a Friday feeling. <laughs> but somebody saw the story and um, I guess recommended, or, or I'm not sure what the correct term is, to the Library of Congress to archive my list. And the thing that I felt most was relief because my biggest fear is that the information would disappear. And so knowing that they were, originally they were once a month, um, dragging it to the archives, and then I asked them before the book came out to do it once a week because I was, I was concerned that I would get hacked and the information would disappear. I, I was backing it up and so forth, but I, I, and that also gave rise to then at the one-year anniversary to putting it on a formal website as well where it could be more secure. But um, so, yeah, that was the other rationale for the book was partly wanting to make sure it was in print, and that was around the time net neutrality was being announced. Hmm. So the idea of having it 
accessible for people that they could pick up at their libraries, even if they didn't have money to pay for the cost of having the internet. We're, we're literally having that conversation, but yes, we are. And that's something Sarah had warned about, and all the exports warned about, the disappearing information. Yeah, or disappearing access to information. So that was another rationale for the book and, and for you know me being really pleased that it was at a, in another place where it would be safe, although people point out to me, the Library of Congress, when Trump is done with it, <laughs> we'll have a lot of other issues at that point. It, it's just going to be the art of the deal, wall to wall. So, yeah, you know, the, actually, uh, another an, a role that your book might play, Samantha B. actually mentioned this in a, in a blurb on the book jacket, is that uh, it might be used as a textbook uh, someday when we look back on this and are like, what the F happened? Yeah, and I, I know that I I get it's very sweet. I do get bombarded with emails and messages from all the different mediums, but I know kids in high school and in college. Well, you're in college, you're not a kid. Kids in high school and students in college had used the list for their for their papers um, this year, and I do suspect schools will start to use it for their curriculum. Well, that's got to be very meaningful to you. And, you know, and I then obviously I would ask, since so much has already happened in 2018, are you going to be doing a follow-up book? No, I haven't decided. I actually met with my agent a couple of weeks ago on that. The the issue is, um, so the first book, which is not insignificant, it's 500 pages long. It's a big one. Uh, And it's 100 pages of triple column footnotes, uh, has 4,000 items. We passed 4,000 items in week 77, um, you know, from week 53 to 77. So, you know, and I don't think anyone's going to be interested in having a 2,000-page book. So we might do something different for the next years. It might be a a mix of some sort of memoir kind of writing along with, uh, you know, the list. It's something we're discussing and starting to think about because the the lists are so much longer in year two. Okay. Well, you know, I I always like to end interviews on a hopeful note on this show whenever possible. Um, And we we touched on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, you've referred to the U.S. as a, quote, failing democracy during this time. Uh, The tagline actually for the weeklylist.org is this is how democracy ends. But you say in the book intro that you see us eventually coming back from this. So what does that look like in your mind? Well, I, I don't believe that he's going to see the end of his first term. And uh, I talk about this in my book events. I, I think there's several different ways. Talk that, about those, uh, if you would. Yeah, and, and I've been saying this through March when I started, when the book first came out, and some of them have played out more quickly than others. But my, my first way that I thought he would be taken out of office is the Me Too movement and the skeletons in his closet relating to women not necessarily the allegations themselves, but the cover-up of the crime. And fast forward, here we are two months later, and we have Stormy Daniels, and yesterday's summer reserve case was decided that they can depose him. So keep an eye on Me Too, because I feel like we know the very little bit of what we still will eventually know um, after Michael Cohen's files are made more public of the women and and the cover-ups and the intimidation that played there. Uh, and we also know since since then that in his financial disclosure agree, uh, uh, financial disclosure reports, in the first year he didn't disclose the payment to Stormy Daniels, which is you know unethical, unlegal. He's getting away with all this stuff, but keep an eye on those things. The second area is the Mueller probe, and um, you know I, I always joke at my events that who's Papadopoulos? I 
cover everything that this man does, and I had never heard of Papadopoulos until he had pled guilty. Most of us had So right. assume that, you know, that we know very little of what Mueller knows. We, our reporting will come out from our newspapers, we'll break stories, and it's something that Mueller has known for six months or 12 months. So sort of view that as the iceberg analogy. We know very little. The thing that I always say to watch for is Deutsche Bank as well. Um, they've made huge loans to Kushner and Trump in the year before the election when nobody else would lend to them, and they also were found guilty of laundering Russian money. They were known as the global laundromat for Russian money. So keep an eye on that. And the third area, um, and, and last year I made the Politico 50, and they had asked us all last summer, what's the one thing our media should be covering that they're not? And I had said Cambridge Analytica, that I'm, you know, I'm still unsure that our election was fair. And Cambridge Analytica is now out of business. They're being investigated, although more aggressively, in the U.K. than here, and already charges have been found. Um, but they were in the offices and working with Brad Parscale along with Facebook when all our data was sold. They seemed to know where to target information, like African-American voters in Michigan, and then Trump won Michigan by 10,000 votes. And there's one week in my list in particular, um, week 32, that I sometimes read. Uh, it, it was in June of 2017, where all this stuff came out. And then, you know, it's, it, this happens every week. But then next week, there's so much more list, so much more information we forget. But things of that week were the fact that in um, in North Carolina, that in blue districts, their voter rolls were on the day of the election not functioning properly, right. but in red districts. They were fine. In Texas, the Dallas Morning News had reported that blue districts had their computers hacked by Russians, but or IPs associated with Russians, but the red districts did not. That week came out that Deep Root Analytics, which was a consultant firm whose head ultimately went off and worked for Trump once he won, um, had left data on 200 million Americans open and online, including their voting habits and their issues, where anybody could see it, including Russia. So those were the kind of things that came out in one week, and then the next week there were more shocking things, and, and we forgot, which happens every week. Sure. So I, I think that we still don't know if we com, you know, if we're sure if, if we had a fair election, and that's something I think we will know eventually. But any of those items um, – could take him down. Well, you've really been ahead of the curve uh, on most of the things that you just talked about. So in addition to chronicling, you're actually a pretty reliable crystal ball. Uh, so I'm, I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling a little more hopeful just uh, listening to you talk about that. Uh, so I guess the question that I would ask as a follow-up about Trump is, once he's gone, how do we come back? I mean, he has damaged He's done such such damage to our institutions, to our discourse, to the to the very conception of the and the nature of truth. How, how do you see us recovering from all of that? You know, I think it's exponential or magnified. The longer he stays in, the longer it's going to take us. I, you know, I think at this point where it takes years to recover, if he's in office for another year, it takes you know, it's not a matter of years. It might take a decade to recover. The things that we have lost that people aren't even stopping to recognize that, that I kind of see in my head because I track these things, you know, like Jared and Ivanka used personal email while they were in the White House. Jared and Ivanka have security clearance. Um, Trump didn't file his tax. Well, he didn't share his taxes publicly. Trump, we don't know what his medical condition is because, you know, it turned out he had two lawyers, that one who he dictated his medical health to and one who is being investigated now um, 
for for things that he did in his career and in the White House. So uh, the answer is we've normalized and forgotten so much because every week is new chaos. And uh, what I'm hoping with these lists and with the book that that people will read these early weeks and say, oh, my God, this wasn't normal that he was still the executive producer of Celebrity Apprentice after he took office. Uh, oh, my God, it's not normal that he's still talking about the size of his crowd and having military parades. And it, these are things that are not normal. And I'm hoping that we will establish laws that will prevent this from happening again. Uh, you yeah. know, and I also think you're going to see changes in our political parties. Um, Talk about that. You know, I I, I, I am sort of of the belief uh, for Democrats that – and I think it's – largely happening that we put our differences aside, um, <laughs> that this is a fight for our democracy. And I think a lot of the votes that are swaying elections and primaries or in some states where there are open primaries are people who have never been engaged or even registered Democrats showing up to vote because they're so this is a fight for our democracy. Um, but I, I think that there's going to be the Republican Party even more so. But I, I think there's going to be a reconstitution of People that felt forgotten by this process are in part what happened in 2016, but there's also a whole lot of racism in our country. Let's let's not be kidding ourselves that the 35 percent that we were like fed this narrative that these people, the white people, were concerned about their jobs. Well, that might have been the case for some of them, but most of them, most of them just didn't like that we have you know Muslim Americans and Black Americans taking their jobs, and women in the workforce, and gay Americans that are outwardly gay. So I, you know, I think it's like a reckoning, um, and and I think you're you're seeing on the Democrat side something that heartens me a lot. You're seeing women um, run in record numbers. You're seeing people of color. You're seeing your first openly lesbian mayor in Seattle. Right. So 2017 was a year, uh, you know, of, of record diversity, and I and I think you're going to see our party, the Democratic Party, reflect the people that. Um, got them there in, in, in much more historic kind of way, in a in much more you know, pro forward kind of way. The Republican Party is, is, as it exists, going to die. I mean, Trump is taking it into the ground, and you can see that in elections like Missouri last night, where a Democrat won a Republican seat by 19 points, and I was seeing quotes from voters in Missouri saying, "This is not our party." So they're going to have to go through their own reckoning. I don't know what that looks like on the other side for them. But I, I, I do believe we'll come out with two parties, but their philosophies will be um, different. They're going to have to adapt to what we went through, um, you know, and it remains to be seen. And I, in our country, we'll take steps backwards as we are, and we're getting, you know, Roseanne Barr into the light of day with her anti-Semitic and her ape comments. Um, legitimized by Trump with his animal comments. We're, we're bringing that into the light of day, and, and that's how you end things. You, you bring them into the light of day where they can be seen, uh, you know, and then as a country we say, this is not okay. It, it's probably going to take years or decades to fix that, but that was what the, the undercurrent that, that we have racial, racial diversity and women in the workplace and gay marriage, you know, there's going to be a, a, a backlash to that. And I think in many ways we're likely seeing maybe the last gasp of uh, male patriarchal rule in this country, and uh, they're going out with a bang. So, But I, I, I think that's a really, as, as 
close to a hopeful note as we're going to get <laughs> on this topic. So the, let's let's talk about uh, what you're going to be, what you're currently doing on your book tour. Uh, we, we have listeners in Portland, certainly, and you're doing two events there coming up, right? Yes. Thank you for asking. Yeah. So next Wednesday, um, I'm doing two events. I'm doing a lunch at Bethany's Table in Portland and a evening event at the Alberta Rose Theater with Sarah Kenzior that's being moderated by Courtney Ham- Hemmeister. Hemmeister. Courtney Hemmeister is actually a high school classmate of mine and a, and a very I good mean. friend. Yes. So that's uh, very exciting. Well, I know she's beloved there. So that yeah. both events, for good and bad, sold out super fast. So at both events, if you're in Portland, um, I just spoke with the people at Bethany's Table. We're going to do an event from 12 to 1 there, and then from 1 to 2 have an open book signing and dessert. So anybody who got sold out of the main event will be able to come to that. And um, the tickets for that event, the proceeds are being donated to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And the evening event should end at 9 o'clock, and we're going to do, Sarah and I are both going to be signing books at 9, and um, the the proceeds from that event are going to the um, Southern Poverty Law Center. So I'm trying to do some good out there as well. Mm-hmm. well. We really need, and, and this is a really strong message, yeah, I can't like under uh, understate the work that our organizations are doing to save us. ACLU, Move On, um, the ADL, NAACP, Southern Poverty Law Center, they're in my weekly list all the time. They are in the front, you know, you know fighting the battles for us. The first event I did for the book, I keynoted an ACLU event and donated my keynote fee back to them. It's it's so important that we support these organizations right Absolutely. now. Yeah. And I would be remiss if I did not uh, give a shout out to Indivisible and, and put them alongside that list as well. Yes. Um, so uh, you are also going to be coming to Seattle in September. Uh, that is still kind of taking shape at this point, and I'll let listeners know. But the book is The List. It is available now from Bloomsbury Press, and the site is theweeklylist.org. Amy Siskin, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time. So as I have noted in past shows, the vast majority of strides made on the issue of gun safety have come at the state and local level. And recently, members of Indivisible Kirkland have worked with the city of Kirkland to craft and successfully pass gun legislation there. Uh, Indivisible Kirkland is also going to be hosting a community action workshop called Saving Lives Through Gun Safety on June 12th. And here to talk about all this is Heather McKnight. She is a member of the Kirkland core team. Hi, Heather. Good morning. So, you know, when you reached out to let me know about not just the workshop, but also about the work that Indivisible Kirkland has been doing on behalf of gun safety, I was I was just so happy to talk with you about it because this issue is something that I think just needs constant attention. And so this is a great opportunity to talk about gun safety and also just to talk about the great grassroots work that you and your team have been doing. So I think I'll just start by asking you, why did you and your team decide to take up this issue? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Indivisible Kirkland had been interested in gun safety since our inception in early 2017. We'd advocated for gun safety at the state level when uh, we had meetings with our state reps and senators to share our 2018 legislative agenda. Um, Then in early March, we had a midweek evening membership meeting scheduled, and that was after the Parkland shooting, and we were motivated at that time to Uh, focused the meeting on a discussion of gun safety. 
It was a yucky evening. We mm. weren't really expecting many people, um, as not many people had indicated that they would be going to the event. Um, but on that night, people just kept streaming in uh, to the meeting. We ended up with having about 25 people, people from Indivisible Kirkland, Kirkland Faith, Lutheran Peace Fellowship, and other community members attend the meeting. Uh, we had a really great discussion, and we decided that we did want to move forward with taking some real action on gun safety. The following week, Kirkland Faith had a meeting, and my colleague uh, Sarah Franklin uh, and I attended that meeting, as did the city of Kirkland's mayor, Amy Wallen. Um, she spoke of wanting to take bold action related to gun safety, and we were inspired by her words, and they actually serve as a guidepost for the work that we've engaged in thus far. Well, that's great, and I think it really speaks to the the level of motivation that we're seeing not just here locally but also across the country on the issue of gun safety. I think people have just had enough with all of this. And so exactly. well, so talk about the legislation that you crafted and passed with the city of Kirkland. I'm interested in the process. Uh, first, how did you approach the city council on this? Okay, great question. So we took a cue from the city of Sammamish, who had passed a gun safety resolution in late February. We decided to take the same path. A core group of us, we did a ton of research, and over a series of working sessions, we identified seven gun safety priorities, which were for us promote responsible gun ownership, reduce mass shootings and homicides, reduce suicides, accidental shootings, promote responsible disposal of firearms and support local communities. We also wanted to oppose legislation that would arm teachers, um, extend concealed carry reciprocity, and expiration dates on gun-related legislation, such as um, the automatic weapons ban, which uh, ran out in 2004. Mm. Um, So in April, one of our indivisible Kirkland uh, leaders uh, addressed the city of Kirkland City Council uh, during items from the audience, which is a three-minute segment in which community members can address council, and requested that they pass a gun safety resolution, which we called Saving Lives Through Gun Safety. Okay, so you put forth the resolution, and then how ultimately did the city council wind up voting on it? So uh, when it was put to a vote, all of the members of council voted yes oh, well. on the safety re- on the resolution. That's great. Okay, so you know, I just have to. We were po- very pleased. Yeah, I have to point out that it's it's just got to feel good that the work that you're doing uh, may ultimately wind up saving lives here. It's just fantastic. It 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 is great, um, and we do feel a certain sense of urgency um, because every time uh, a shooting happens. Um, well, people uh, lose their lives, and uh, it's unnecessary, and uh, we are want to take grassroots action um, because we feel that that is the way that things will get done. So the first step to actualize the legislation is going to happen at a town hall in Kirkland on June 20th. So tell us about that. What happens there? 
Yes, there is a town hall uh, at the Lake Washington High School uh, from 5.30 to uh, 8.00 p.m. And uh, members of the community who have an interest in supporting gun safety are encouraged to attend. It will be a dialogue in which um, people are able to address the council, share their concerns, as well as their possible solutions uh, to take action on gun safety. You know, I should also mention that th- there's a ballot initiative that is uh, coming up, 1639, that's pretty similar to what you're doing. Uh, tell us about 1639. Sure. Uh, the Alliance for Gun Safety has introduced a ballot initiative. They will start collecting signatures shortly. And uh, the initiative 1639 is focused on safe schools, safe communities. As I said, signature gathering will uh, start shortly, um, but the time is actually very short to collect signatures. Uh, They need to be collected by early July in order to get the initiative on the ballot for November. So it's really going to take all hands. Uh, Anyone who's interested in uh, participating in the signature gathering should visit uh, the Alliance for Gun Safety's website. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a pretty stiff deadline because uh, 300,000 signatures is what they're going to need to to get in order to put it on the ballot. So they do need help there. Uh, So let's talk about the workshop that you have planned. It is called Saving Lives Through Gun Safety, and it's going to be in Kirkland on June 12th, starting at 6.30 p.m. What's, What's on the agenda? As you said, it is this coming Tuesday, and uh, what we are intending to do is to share the process that we've gone through, all of our research, all of our tools, and um, our experience. We'd like to bring together like-minded individuals or groups who want to take local action to save lives through gun safety. Post-workshop or after the workshop, our groups will serve as mentors or coaches to those who take up the mantle for gun safety in their cities. Ultimately, our intention is to go beyond Kirkland uh, to support and encourage other cities to adopt a resolution and policy similar to Kirkland's. We want to work together as a broader community to achieve the goals of gun safety in our cities and in our states. Specifically, we want sister cities to band together, to lobby together, to affect change at the state level. We feel that our voices will be stronger when they're coordinated across communities. Well, as you know, this show is heard all across the state of Washington, and I think people will be, uh, particularly other indivisible members, may potentially be very inspired by the work that you've done in Kirkland. So I think that's a good incentive for people to show up. Um, And also, I should add that this won't be the last workshop that you're going to do. You plan on doing more of these, right? We do. We we hope to uh, replicate. Uh, this is our pilot, and we hope to offer these uh, in the future, whether they be web-based or we take it on the road to other communities. But yes, we see this as as the start of um, something bigger. Well, I think that's tremendous. Um, so, you know, I should mention, uh, because there are people out there who are not supportive of the work that you're doing, uh, anybody who is looking to attend the workshop on the 12th is going to need to contact you directly for more information. So I'll give your email address here. It is heather at ikwa.info, and that'll be available on the indivisiblepodcast.org site and also on the SoundCloud page for the show. Um, but uh, Heather McKnight, thank you for the work that you're doing, and thank you so much for coming on to talk about it. Thank you very much.
very much. Um, I, I do. I want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, share this information with others. And I, I'd just like to close by saying that when we started this process, we didn't, um, you know, have necessarily have the expertise that uh, people may think that we had. Um, but we we took a chance and uh, we worked hard and persevered to. Um, to take action and uh, if we can do it we know that others can do the same and we want to partner with them to help them make that change that's perfect thank you so much thank you and so just a couple more orders of business before we go as you may have heard the far-right group patriot prayer is staging a rally at planned parenthood in kent this saturday june 9th as part of an ongoing campaign calling for congress to defund planned parenthood a number of advocacy groups will be showing up to stage a counter protest called defend women's reproductive freedom say no to misogynists and white supremacists so if you would like to join groups like seattle clinic defense the seattle branch of radical women and AnswersSeattle.org in standing against Patriot Prayer. Again, this will be Saturday, June 9th at 11 a.m. at the Planned Parenthood Kent Valley Health Center. That's at 10056 Southeast 240th Street in Kent. Also, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is going to be holding an organizer training on Saturday, June 16th in Seattle. There will be breakout workshops led by local community organizers and Jayapal's field staff covering everything from canvassing to how to use social media in campaign work. In the words of Indivisible Washington's 8th District leader, Chris Petzold, this will be a great opportunity to learn how to use your hands, heart, and feet to build movements for justice and win progressive victories. That sounds good. It is Saturday, June 16th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Finney Neighborhood Center Lower Building. That's at 6615 Dayton Avenue North in Seattle. And finally, the Gender Justice League is currently raising money for Trans Pride Seattle. This is the Northwest's largest trans-specific event and serves nearly 10,000 people each year, and they are currently raising funds. From their website, quote, significant streams of revenue for our services and work have been cut off, such as community direct HIV prevention funding and housing discrimination education funding. These sources made up nearly 25% of Trans Pride Seattle's funding. Other mainstream funding continues to be extremely hard for us to access. We receive no city or county funds, have no TPS-specific grants, and do not accept major corporation sponsorships. So, gang, they are committed to being community-funded, and that's where you come in. There is a GoFundMe page where you can donate, and I will have a link to that. And I will also have information about all the events that I just talked about on the SoundCloud page for the show and also at IndivisiblePodcast.org. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you want to get in touch, and please do, the email is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter is at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. My thanks again to Amy Siskind and Heather McKnight. And as always, my thanks to you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.